My guest today is Teddy Nyahasha, who is Chief Executive of One Family, a friendly society based in Brighton on the south coast of the United Kingdom. Teddy was appointed Chief Executive Officer of One Family in January 2020, having previously held the role of Chief Financial Officer since joining the group in 2016. Now, during his tenure as a member of One Family's executive team, Teddy's been instrumental in critical strategic decisions which have led to greater organisational efficiency, stronger performance, and most interesting to me, a reinforcement of member-focused values. He's got a strong record of delivering results with startups and global multi-billion pound organisations, including household names such as Royal London and Aviva. In addition, Teddy's got experience in policyholder and customer protection from his work at the former industry regulator, the Financial Services Authority. Teddy's led diverse teams across different countries and cultures, and he's a qualified chartered accountant, a certified financial risk manager, and has got an MBA from the London Business School. Teddy's a genuinely purpose-driven leader who champions mutuality. And in a recent article, he described mutuals as having a moment. And I wanted to dig into this and see what he meant. You'll also hear about what it's like to lead a mutual organisation in the 21st century, one that's owned by its customers, and how, in the midst of a year of turmoil, mutuals may actually be re-emerging as a natural home for customers who want the companies they entrust with their savings and insurance to do the right thing. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Teddy. Thanks of all very much for coming along. And, and first of all, welcome to the show. Really looking forward to the conversation. Now, I know quite a bit about One Family and a little bit about you, given the fact that we've worked together. But there's no doubt loads that I don't know. And I'm sure that our listeners would be fascinated to hear a little bit of your story. So could you perhaps start off by just giving our listeners a brief overview of your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say hello to you. I mean, clearly yourself and your listeners. And I'm really pleased to be on, on this podcast. A little bit about myself before I probably get into kind of one family. I'm a father and I've got two kids and one seven and one five. And uh, we are very much uh, in an East Sussex based family and which is where the business is also, also based. I've been actually at one family for just about four years and just got appointed to be CEO of the business in January this year. Prior to that, I was the CFO. Of the group, my my actual uh, career spans back to 1994, where I was I started as an accountant trainee auditor with what is now called PwC uh, back then in Zimbabwe. So hopefully, some people have picked up my Southern African accent in <laughs> in the intro. So post qualification, uh, I did work within kind of the consultancy firms, both audit and consultancy. And then around 2003, decided to leave the profession to join the UK financial regulator at the time, the FSA, which was actually quite an interesting time for me because it, I was working both on the banking and insurance sector. And it was a time where we, the regulator was looking to integrate the source book and bring in new rules for both insurers and banking. And being able to play on both sides of the fence was actually quite enlightening. It was also one of the kind of the, the landmarks for me in terms of actually starting to look at the world through the lens of protection for policyholders, as well as the other lens at the FSA, which was looking at protection for customers. And that I found, you know, actually quite an enjoyable period, but then also just gave me a different perspective of, you know, kind of what, not only what the regulators are trying to do, but where the vulnerabilities of different customer segments stems from. 
and that's something that I've carried through in my career. Having left the regulator, I then did a series of roles in relatively large roles across uh, the insurance sector, spanning from startups through to large multinational companies and insurers. Examples in terms of household names being Aviva and Royal London, before then joining uh, one family. And that kind of forms the full circle of my career. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Really interesting. And and so tell us a bit about One Family. I mean, I think some of our listeners might be surprised to understand that there's about 200 friendly societies active in the UK. And, you know, in some respects, I often think of them as a best kept secret in terms of, um, you know, the, these organisations existing. But perhaps you could just talk a little bit about what a friendly society is and, and what mutuality is, and then a little bit about One Family, because I think that's something that perhaps most people won't necessarily understand. Yeah, no, no. Thanks for that, and and it's and it's indeed something that I do think it's a, it's something that we we probably been guilty of not celebrating enough, particularly in the UK, because I kind of see the UK as it's it's almost the founding place for mutuality, and if I look at the mutual movement post the kind of the turn of the last century, I think we probably have had less talk of mutuals, but with within kind of the mutual specter. Friendly societies tend to be more of kind of the insurers, long-term saving providers. And being a mutual, it means that we are here, we're owned, and we, we are here for the customers. So the customers own the company. And also, indeed, um, where, where we get our direction from is directly from the customers who we then call our members. And if, within One Family, One Family itself has been in existence for just over 40 years has always been Brighton-based, but the name One Family itself came about in 2015 after the merger with the business, which was based in, 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 in Harrogate called Engage. So as a name, as a household name, it's probably relatively new, but the business line itself is pretty much mature. And where I kind of see the mutual movement uh, in terms of a differentiator, it's not just the ownership itself, but it's almost the ethos in which mutuals have been formed and, and therefore the, the bedrock of why mutuals was formed in the first place. So if you said, you know, if you go back probably 200 years ago, where you, you kind of see some of the, the roots of some of the early mutuals, those were basically all predicated to kind of address some of the social ills where government could not step in. And basically this was all about inclusivity and giving peace of mind for the ills, which were predominantly at the time around sickness and uh, death and old age. And that remains the ethos of what I see as the friendly society movement and indeed something that we treat, try to hold on to at One Family. Okay. And I mean, in terms of practical day-to-day running of the business, how does that differ for perhaps some of the other sort of experiences that you've had in your career previously in terms of the decision-making and perhaps the the outlook? I mean, do you take a, a longer-term view as a result of not having the same shareholder pressure, perhaps, or things like that? I think if I go back to some of my experiences with probably the, the, the kind of the larger listed entity, there's definitely more license to do what is right and in the long term. And by that, I'm, I'm not trying to imply that, you know, other forms of company setups don't necessarily operate on what is right. But it's, certainly, we don't have the short-term pressures that at times uh, kind of PLCs have in terms of, you know, you're running a PLC at times, 
you are challenged with the kind of short-term measures such as dividend policies and payments of dividends and kind of the shorter-term returns, whereas the license that you, particularly if you're fully engaged with your membership, you get more license in terms of doing kind of that more longer-term value creation. And I certainly feel that the benefits of being a mutual and being much closer to the customer, the person you're serving, as well as the person who actually you're taking steer and direction from, makes the job that much easier to be consistent and authentic in what you're doing for both the customer and the ownership structure. Okay, okay. And we'll come back to authenticity, I'm sure, as we as we go through. If I may just explore a little bit there, because I'm, I'm intrigued around, you know, from what you're saying, that's about staying close to your customer, being guided by your customer. I mean, I mean how do you go about doing that? Is, is that a, a set of practical listening steps that you take like any company would? Or how do you interact and how do you engage with your customers? So we, we have two, two main routes to that. One is what I'll call a, a business as usual. We consistently always try to engage our customer base from whether it's taking proactive surveys with different cohorts. One of the humbling experiences that I would basically say from a customer, being a customer-led business, is you also have to recognize where you come across different generational customer needs. And, and that's one of the things that I think the humbling effect for me is having done a lot of customer surveys and, and a lot of uh, voice of the customer type activities as a BAU activity is that you actually start recognizing that there are actually different voices that are coming through your customer base. And so whilst that's one angle that we get it, the other more powerful angle is actually our, our annual process where we actually present the results to our membership tend to be our customers. And as an example, you know, in, in my time with one family, one of the things that we've now embarked on, which is around uh, in ethical investments, particularly around environment, that was a loud call that came out from one of our annual general meetings, where it was basically the membership who challenged us as to why we were not going down that route. So, so in a way, you know, our AGM almost tends to act as a reference point where we get direct feedback from not only the customers but the people who actually own the estate that we are stewards for mm. and, and and that just makes it a much more powerful engaging activity to meet the people you're serving and getting a clear steer for where, where they put their priorities and i've been to one of your agms when i was working with the organization and i was i was genuinely surprised i mean even within a friendly society sector or a mutual sector the first of all given the size of your organization the number of people that actually show up and then secondly, the, the passion with which they would have the question and answer is a little bit like, like going to a, a, you know, a football manager's Q&A that you have once a year where they're talking about signings or um, <laughs> players' wages or anything like that. I mean, there's a real passion in the room. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic environment. Absolutely. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's also humbling because, you know, you, I'll say my, my big transition is, was – so it's been a traditional accounting background. You, can, you tend to look at success through the lens of numbers. And therefore, you know, it, that's easier when you're dealing with dividends and, you know, how, you know, the return and payback. Whereas what was quite, quite clear in terms of some of the interactions we've had with AGMs is actually where customers are not valuing kind of the short-term measures or the short-term return but in, in particular on the environment, this was almost a generational core of having a, that longer term investment in, in, in kind of not only the current future, but 
in terms of into, into the the next generations. And and that that's something that's really powerful in terms of that just the link between those non-immediate financial needs of a customer and what our purpose is. Okay. And let's move on to purpose because I'd love to really, I mean, this, the, the whole theme of these podcasts is about what I've called the rise of the customer. It's about consumerism, but I'm trying to get under the skin of what is it like to be involved in a business, trying to run a business successfully when you have those kind of consumer pressures that you've talked about and, and doing that in the right way, doing the right thing. And I, I, I always contend that in all of the assignments that we do when organizations are trying to think about cultural change or they're trying to think about how they engage their people in being more customer-centric or indeed any kind of vision for the company, having a really clear and compelling purpose is always the start point for me. And, and, and it's such an obvious but, but grounding effect that it has within the culture of the business. So, I mean, first of all, I suppose, do you agree with that? And what's the purpose of one family? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with it. And I, I think just to add to that, I think part of what I've learned is you don't stop learning of what it is that the customer needs because your blind spot is you think that you've got the answer right today but you know and, and you need will, will emerge over time and for us ours, you know to keep it simple we look at it as we are adding value to our customers and our members but in terms of underneath that is we look at it through well, I would say multiple lenses of what is adding value and that's where you then have the broader sustainability aspect that this is about making sure that the business is financially sustainable and therefore it is we are a commercial enterprise but at the same time we have more of a license to be investing in the much broader sustainable model in terms of we we need to invest in our customers and in our customers communities so one of the big things that we we run is we have a foundation and and the foundation has been in existence since 2015 and we use that as a vehicle of almost distributing profits that we make. But the choices of where we put those profits and where we distribute it, those are choices that are made by our customers and our members. So we, we have a series of steps where our members will elect the causes that they want those profits to go to. And to date, we've kind of distributed something like 3.5 million through the foundation. So it, it becomes that a tag to continually engage with our customer. But one of the things that I decided to do when when I took over the reins was it was not just good enough to have the strap lines, but it was also important that we walked the talk and therefore made sure to making sure that one of the things that I'm I'm really keen for us to do is whilst there's always been a passion within one family, particularly on things such as serving our customers, it is how we as an as an organization are as authentic in everything that we do to the very things that our customers are demanding. It's one thing putting customer money into companies or investments that meet the bill around environment or any other sustainable agenda. But to really be authentic, we also need to live those same ideals that we are trying to force those other companies to do. So that's one of the the, the big changes that we're trying to introduce in the business that, you know, we need to be continually authentic. And the big difference for me for one family is that tag inclusiveness. And and it's in financial services, which is again another slightly departure from the PLCs, one of the challenges that I find in UK Inc. 
is when we talk about marginalized groups, I look at it across, you know, whether it's, you know, life choices, sexual orientation, race, but also social demographic is a key um, element here in the UK. And one of the things that kind of tends to happen within financial services is we tend to herd and converge around serving more or less the middle class and upper. Mm. So most of, if you look at across, you know, the big platforms in terms of for savings products, they tend to be very much, you know, you have, it's almost an, there's a barrier of entry and that barrier of entry is relatively high deposits that if you compare to the general demographics of the UK, eliminates a significant portion. So I think one of the mandates that really trying to, to really embrace this inclusive piece, we are a vehicle for pulling pulling resources across different customer segments. And we're really trying to strive to be as inclusive so that our products are as available to those who have fewer pockets of savings as well as those who have much larger balances who can therefore subsidize those we have less. And that's part of that being authentic and inclusive as a broader society. Mm. And, and it's just a, a, an example of one of the things that we're really trying to push our envelope towards. And does that mean that you would talk about that with your your customers? And, and let me sort of let me put that in very stark terms. Would you go as far as communicating the fact that the pooling mechanism that you're talking about means that, in some respects, you're cross subsidising? I mean, it, it, I mean that's a very extreme set of words, but you know, there's the commercial reality to this conversation as well, isn't there? So. There is absolutely a commercial reality, and and one of the things that I would hold my hand up on is if I if a customer comes to me with a reasonable balance, and for me a reasonable balance is anybody who has a savings balance of, you know, upwards and going to twenty thousand. And if a customer came to me and said, for my twenty thousand, I could find a platform that charges me less to service, my answer is absolutely. But I'm not competing with those platforms and one family is not competing with those platforms that basically have a threshold that basically only pulls from kind of those who have more. Effectively, a telephone call, and that's one of the things we pride ourselves in, that we try to make sure that the service we give is the same quality service, that friendly voice that we avail is there for not only those customers with big balances, but also probably the customers who need it the most, those who mm-hmm. have far less savings, those who probably cannot afford to have an advisor tell them where to put their savings. They're probably the ones who are more likely to call in. Mm-hmm. And you know, the fact of it, the economics is that the telephone call will, charge, will cost exactly the same. Yeah. And so if somebody was have only 500 pounds to invest, for them to be able to access that investment, one of the things we, we provide is our opportunity for you know, like-minded people, and it is a choice from a customer perspective, who are willing to pull with that end of society to make sure that that service is also available. And that might mean that our service to the higher bracket person is slightly higher, but not so much higher than the competition. But what we're doing in, in the process is then making a service that's available to a much broader audience and a broader part of society. That's interesting. Thank you. And I'd just like to step back onto the, the foundation, if I may, just for a moment. I mean, obviously, you know, that's that's not something that um, 
everyone's got um <laughs> and you know it's kind of enshrined in in the nature of the, the business you are it's not just a sort of a, a casual choice that you've taken around you know charitable giving or anything i mean how does that sort of work from an internal perspective i mean do you engage your people in that as well so that they are because you talked about walking the talk and i mean that's a a fantastic manifestation of of doing something that's fundamentally different and if you like right in terms of the the, the nature of what you're talking about how do people get involved in that and and do they get involved in the running of it yeah no absolutely so we, our our foundation has traditionally looked at probably three main forms of causes that we we sponsor um three main buckets one is where we basically elect charities and that's a combination of charities that our members feel most passionate about and therefore we are supporting those charities that basically support the causes that our members feel passionate about. But we also then uh, look at community projects and community grants through the charity. And, and this could be as ranging as, you know, a school or, you know, sponsoring a playground in a deprived area of, of the country. And this is national. And to a large extent, most of our people do get involved in, you know, once those, those themes have been identified. So before lockdown, you'd probably find a lot of people going off to those themes where if they're local, um, we, we have a representation of members of staff. But on the charity side, we also are for time out to actually go and support individual charities that uh, we, we back. So Age is one of them, where almost as an annual event, we have a lot of our people who basically participate in, you know, just giving their time to support whatever causes that need to be done. And then the, in particular, when COVID hit, we introduced what we called a hardship grant. And this was, we introduced this very early uh, on the first lockdown. And that was to identify that within our customer base, we actually have some families where uh, we just felt that there was struggle. And linked to that was also, if you recall, we had the homeschooling. And whilst homeschooling as a notion, you know, is something we all had to embrace, what struck us was the number of families where they would not have the equipment to enable them to do homeschooling. Now, after we had launched out, there there was then clearly a government initiative to support some of those families. But we moved very quickly on that. And, And basically, we introduced a hardship grant where, you know, it was really aimed at just helping a little, whether it was helping uh, families with, uh, you know, bills such as rent as the lockdown hit, and this is before the furlough was announced, and that's proved to be very popular this year. Mm-hmm. And it's something again that you know our people relate to. I mean, by the way, our, our people cannot participate in any of the causes in terms of directly benefit from the foundation, no, but it's something that definitely resonates with our people in terms of the, that greater purpose. And, and just at the sense that they're here to serve a greater purpose and just um, kind of walk in a, in a nine to five. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's certainly noticeable, you know, when you're in the building and, and when you're talking to your guys that they kind of just get it. It seems to be almost in their DNA. I mean, is that, is that a recruitment masterstroke or do you constantly reinforce it? Are you, are you brainwashing people? How, how do you, how do you do that? No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as, I mean, we, we do, we, we do make a point to try to make sure that we are bringing people who subscribe to the same ethos and ideals that, and the culture. Uh, and I said, one of the things that we're trying to do is kind of refresh what our culture is and which is, you know, what are the behaviors that we're trying to encourage? 
but I'll say, you know, I've been fortunate that I've taken over an organization where that long-standing customer centricity has is, is almost embedded, particularly at the core of the business. And where I say the core of the business is kind of the customer services. And, and I do take time so often in the year to just go down to our customer services desk, which now is predominantly virtual, to listen in to calls. And, and that's where you really feel kind of the heart of the organization. So I think we have it in kind of within the DNA. But having said that, it's something that if you not if you don't nurture, it's something that you will quickly lose. And there's always the, the risk that, you know, and so it's something that you do need to continually nurture, always remind ourselves of why we're here, always remind ourselves as to what, we, what we're trying to achieve. And, and having exercises like the one we started this year, which is just across the whole organization, going through how we want to behave and what we, what we value the most within the organization, just reinforcing that. That's something that I always say, you know, you, you always have to continually do because it's, it's the passion that goes beyond kind of the day job that really carries you through. And we had a great testament of that during the lockdown. And if if you recall, we were lucky as a UK-centric business, we were effectively in control of all our resources and people. And therefore, it, the, the initial challenge was just making sure our colleagues worked were safely working from home. But after that, one of the things that we did discover was we're getting inundated with calls from customers, but not because customers were initially wanting to have a conversation about the product. But what became clear is we had quite a large group of, particularly the more uh, elderly customers, who were isolated and they were calling in on our call center because they were looking for a friendly voice to talk to. Mm-hmm. So whilst they normally start with, you know, the weather, this time around it was starting with, you know, COVID and then you get into, you know, their, their state. And, and that was kind of interesting when you kind of look at the stats of how long our calls were taking much longer. But, you know, that was basically reinforcing why we were here as an organization is those people we're trying to serve. And it, it's, it's as simple as just being there for your customers and doing the right thing. It's, mm. it's, it's not rocket science. I'm sure you weren't alone in that phenomenon. I mean, I'm, I haven't heard it quite as nicely articulated as you just had there. And I can imagine that if you've got people that have called before or, and had a fantastic experience of talking to one of your people, then they'd probably you know, seek out that specific friendly voice that they, um, they talked to last time. But I guess being aware of the fact that you have a role to play in that situation and being happy to embrace it and deliver it as opposed to worrying about, you know, getting them off the phone because you need to serve somebody else. I mean, that, that, that does feel genuinely different and it's not something that I think we'd experience everywhere. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose just to illustrate the point, at that, when we got our founders in that situation, we, we actually ended up having to move a lot of our colleagues from other areas to the phones because we were getting this much higher volume of calls coming in. And again, as I said, we, the, the, one of the challenges you have as a long-term business is your touch points with your customers more limited mm. to, to say a, a normal annual retail business. You know, we normally touch point with our customers at the point of sale. And if it's a life insurance product is probably, you know, after hopefully several years. And it's just refreshing for us to be able to be there and be a point of comfort on the intervening period 
and it's that moment of truth. And I and I put it as you know, it is actually one of the, our moments of truth in terms of we've got this contract with our customer, and what they're really buying from us is peace of mind. And therefore, at the point of where they need it, are we there? And that's the thing that we always be challenging ourselves. Yeah, no, that, that that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, what's going on in my mind when you're talking is, you know, we often talk about moments of truth when we do customer journey mapping exercises. And I don't think in any of the journey mapping exercises I've ever done, we we tried to model the impact of a pandemic in terms of creating new moments of truth. But it seems that you've embraced one that's popped up quite nicely. So uh, thanks for the story. I mean, it does bring it to life really well. One of my um, my good friends and colleagues, Oki Iliazu, who uh, wrote a book called The Cult of Service Excellence, and he's going to be on the show um, in a few episodes' time. He talks about there being a cult within organizations that embrace service culture and customer experience and customer centricity in the way you talk about. And it kind of feels like that. Is that, is that a reasonable description or does that have the wrong connotations to you? I mean, in other words, cult can sometimes have a very negative connotation, but I, I'd, I'd recognize it in some of your people in terms of the uh, the slightly almost fanatical um, approach to some of these things. No, no, I, I can recognize some of the characters you refer to as well. I mean, we certainly have, and you do need people like that who almost form the nucleus and, and kind of the pull factor. And, and, I, and I think generally as a business, when you look at, okay, if anything else was to stop, what is the one thing that you will continue, you'd have to continue doing? to the way you're relevant. For us, this lockdown and the, the COVID has kind of just demonstrated that first and foremost, we are here for our customers. Everything else, when you, you go through different scenarios of if the worst came to the worst, what would you need to keep going? We became very clear to us. So, so to some extent, I, I do see us as, a, as part of that cult or tribe in terms of you know, the, the very customer-centric wanting to do the right thing to some extent it's so simple to just say do the right thing because it's almost calling on a conscience, mm-hmm. but it's assuming that it, that's a common conscience and and therefore the count is probably the, the best way of actually capturing that there's almost a belief that exists within the business and it's is kind of our rallying cry and the thing that we have to embrace and, and the thing that that distinguishes that from other organizations cultural glue holds it together on that point let's platform into sort of a a slightly broader view of the mutual sector i mean you wrote a a very powerful piece recently which i saw on linkedin which talked about kind of what what we've all experienced and been through over the last few months um and certainly in the uk but obviously looking at events overseas and, and and a real mixture of different things but what you talked about there was the the sort of shift in people's attitudes back towards core values and and the fact that you talked about mutuals having a moment, which I thought was a great great way to, to start the article. And I think just quoting from that, you said, I think we'll see a rediscovering of the mutual sector, a financial services sector with a social conscience that behaves in a sustainable way. And I think it's what the country needs right now. And and I can I just dig into that a bit? I mean, I, I, they're great words and, and we can all say things like that, but I kind of sense that you mean it. So, I mean, what sort of drove you to write something like that and, and put it out there? Because in your position, we can all get you know, people knocking very easily and everything else, but you, you must have believed those words to actually put them out there. I mean, what, what drove you to, to write that? I suppose it's, it's, it's also, partly it's, you know, we've all gone, experienced quite a, you know, the COVID crisis, it has been a crisis. And, and you know, the way it's impacted me is, is almost that it's, it's a, to a large extent made me pause 
and, and kind of just take a step back. And and there's a bit of you know personal stock take of you know what what is our greater purpose? What what are we here for? And there's been it's not just the COVID that's happened, but in the last six months there've been a lot of real watershed moments that have basically played out. Whether it's you know the George uh, Floyd incidents and Black Lives Matter, and actually more the more powerfully the response that we saw globally, which just highlighted we were you know on this cusp of collective responsibility and the call out for this is no longer just one person's problem that we all pull together, and even on the small things that we were doing just at the, at the when we were all trying to protect the NHS in terms of the Thursdays, you know, that, if you take all stock of everything that's happened, yes, we've had the real bad things happening, but it's also, you know, all the other things that have made us pause as a society to actually think of, you know, where, where do we come together? And then if I link it to some of the things we've been told, particularly by our younger customer base, and it's particularly the younger generation where that's been a lot more vocal in terms of our more recent surveys, where element of inclusivity has come out as a strong message. So it's not just about, you know, do the right thing by, you know, the environment, do the right thing by social, do the right thing by, you know, that whole inclusion. And that's been a very loud message that has come through all our survey results, almost to the point of you get in feedback from that population that, you know, they would forego almost kind of the strict financial to make sure that they're getting kind of the long-term sustainable. And and that 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 kind of just hit me as, you know, but this is describing exactly what we should be and what we are. And if you go back to the roots of mutuality in terms of why mutuals were set up, it's almost history repeating itself. Mm. That it's it's almost exactly similar causes where Things that were outside almost being covered by mainstream government or other institutions, that's our opportunity to actually make a difference. And I genuinely believe within one family, we have a mandate and we have a strong mandate coming in from our customer base. And, and, and whilst I kind of call out the younger generation, you know, it is the younger generation and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, is the grandparents were also very socially conscious and socially conscious on both environment and, and much the much broader subjects that we deal with and that whole inclusive inclusion. So and, and I and I see that as something something that is more within the mutual ethos and DNA than any other subsector. No, no, I, I agree entirely and, and it's probably worth explaining to the audience that one family holds the the largest book of child trust funds in the UK market. So I think you've got about 25% market share. I'm sure that's the number where for those that may or may not recall it, the government was giving savings vouchers to families for a period of about six years. And therefore, when you had a child, you were able to invest £250 twice and then you could top it up. And I remember working on that project and, you know, what a challenge. You know, you've got a, a, a group of 1.7 million children as customers effectively, although um, not legally, but you know, they become customers. So on their 18th birthday, they're, they're faced with a choice. Do I, do I leave my money where it is or do I, do I roll it over and do something else with it? Or should I put a thousand pounds in my pocket and, and walk off and, and go and spend it on something nice? And so I'm guessing that when you're talking about that voice, it's coming from that 
group of people who most financial services companies won't ever get to speak to in any way, shape or form because they're not going to be a target audience other than perhaps banks who are trying to get people to become bankers for the first time. So tell me a bit about that, if you may. I mean, that must have been quite an interesting almost Rubicon for the business in terms of the way in which you have to act, the way in which you have to talk to people and, and, and the kind of challenges that brings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the kind of challenges on two fronts, as you described, you know, we, by being the largest CTF provider and, and indeed, you know, other products, actually, we estimate that we touch just about one in every 12 families in the UK. And, and that's that's kind of the the reach we have, which is significant. Mm-hmm. But there are two, two special things about CTF. One is it forces you to transition from one customer to another customer. So up until the child takes over the account at the age of, the earliest they can take over the account is the age of 16, that account, your customer at that point is the parent. So for 16 years, you are basically having a relationship with the parent. And then from the point where the child elects to take over the account, you're now forming a new relationship with a different generation. And that's where being nimble and being awake to the different voices that you have a customer was actually quite key. So, so one of the things that was a big thing for us is over the years, we've been trying to do a lot of research to try to understand this new group of customers who we've had a relationship with, but not directly. We've been in a relationship with the parents. And whilst the parents remain a very strong and key customer and, and potential advocate in terms of supporting that, that child. Also re- recognizing that the, the way we communicate with the parent is going to be very different to the way that this generation. So, so part of what we've been doing is both a combination of trying to learn and listen to this new emerging uh, new customer who behaves very differently to their parent yeah. and also likes to communicate and share views and ideas in a very different way. So we've, had, we've been on a learning curve for the last two years just to prepare for the event of actually having this, you know, the, the gift of having a young group of, of, of members and customers. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to is having that refresh of ideas coming back into, you know, whether it's our annual general meeting, that young adult voice which is going to speak very differently to maybe the voice that we used to be speaking to. But that just creates a very exciting space. And as you said, it's, it's more of that longer-term relationship. You know, clearly at the age of 18, you know, the child is not yet earning but, or, or has, has a job. They've got probably other issues that they're in their minds. And for us, part of that moment of truth is that we're there to support them in whatever part of the journey they're trying to get into, whether it's longer-term saving, where there's a parent who's then trying to support the child for kind of the next peril, which is, you know, how does the child get into the property ladder? And we've got products that basically will apply to that. So it's been an exciting but challenging journey because we've had to learn a lot and learn mm. very quickly. And, and one of the things that I'll say is it's also a generation that is not shy of expressing its views. It's quite... I think I've got nieces and nephews of that age, and I've learned that you argue with them at your peril. Um, (laughs) And and actually, you learn a lot if you just stopped and listened a bit. And and that's that's effectively the attitude we've adopted, that we've actually learned a lot from this generation. And it's not about 
us doing what we think they need. It's us listening and then trying to address, because you also have to recall that this is also a generation, you know, CTF, child trust fund accounts, they're still their relative infancy when we got hit by the first financial crisis of 2008. And then you went through that period of austerity. And at the point of maturity, the first cohort is maturing yet in another financial Mm. crisis. Mm. So, you know, there is a special journey that this cohort has gone through and therefore there's a learning. But I think that the other powerful thing for child trust funds, which is, is, is almost unique to any other product, is as you say, we've got, you know, just under 2 million child trust fund accounts, which actually means with the way they were given, which was to every child who was born in the UK, we've got a perfect sample of UK society. And that's very informative in terms of how just how wealth is distributed in our society. Mm. And it, it is, it is, you can literally look through the lens of a child trust fund to actually see how, you know, the disparity between the kind of the part of society that has and those who, who don't have, and how we start enab- creating those tools to enable those who don't have to be able to participate in some of these products, which probably would have been perceived to be the preserve of those we have mm. and, and quite powerful in terms of just the learnings from, uh, as, as you probably know, of the under 2 million accounts, you'd basically say 80% of the value of those accounts comes from 20% mm. of the policies. Mm. That just shows you how there's disparities in, in our society. Mm. But then again, illustrates what I was talking about earlier about the whole pooling of society. That, mm. you know, if, if we pooled as a society, we can open up some of these savings products that probably would have been seen as only be available to people who are more well off. But that takes a broader pool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I, I assume, you know, within that new capabilities for you as you as you actually start to to engage, I'm guessing more digital channels open for communication. I'm guessing social media. I'm guessing all sorts of things, which perhaps hasn't necessarily been the preserve either of mutuals or indeed an organisation like yourselves in the past. Yeah, we, we've had to be very modern very quickly, uh, as you say, social media platforms. And and with social media, one thing you learn is you you know, it's something that you have to keep up with. And this is where then the power of the culture we're trying to bring in becomes stronger because. Actually, the voice that resonates more with that generation within the organization probably is the people who are probably at their entry level within the organization. And therefore, our people actually bring up ideas through the chain because that generation is probably has, is much closer to the customers, the big customer grouping that we're trying to serve. And therefore, it's been as much about making sure that the ideas flow within the organization to make us relevant. And, and and I think one of the, the things I've always found intriguing is part of what I think what makes us great human beings and one of the things that I've, I pick up from, you know, the whole inclusivity is we should never tire of learning. We should always be humble enough to recognize that we're never going to know everything. Mm. And, and certainly CTF, child trust funds and dealing with the young adults has been one of those where you've had to put your hands up and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to need to learn how how to communicate, what resonates with this group. And I need to learn to listen. And 
just reflecting on that, I mean, you've got your, your child trust fund customers. It's fascinating hearing you talk about that. And then, you know, I know because I know a little bit about your organization, you know, quite a lot of your existing product sets and things serve completely the other end of the spectrum, which is people that are, you know, in later life, they're thinking about, you know, releasing equity from their homes, those sorts of things. I mean, that, that, that must call for a very broad range of skills amongst your relatively small customer service team who are trying to serve this this massive, you know, a massively um, different set of customers. Yeah, no, it does. And I think our customer services people are a great asset and a you know, <laughs> one of our biggest assets within the organization. I think people is what makes one family. But if I look at, you know, where, where do we have touch points with our customers? You know, it's just amazing the work they do. You're right that what, one of the things that we... By being inclusive, it's also recognizing that by serving one cohort of customers, you'd have to serve another cohort differently. So a case in point, whilst the young adults are clearly more digital and you know, um, social media, you name it, we do have a significant portion of our customer base who still want to be communicated on to by paper. You know, we've got emails, they've got emails, they would want, you know, we can, it would be a lot more efficient to do emails. But at the end of the day, it's the customer's choice. And this is not about forcing a customer into a, a particular bucket. And, and this is not one size fits all. And that's one of the, the things that as a customer centric organization is you have to be authentic to each group of customers and not try to force what you'd be otherwise your ideals on those customers. I think what we what you're trying to establish with a customer, any customer, is a long-term relationship. And some of those older generation members who would like their paper copies, if I look at you know our annual general meetings that we we talked about earlier, you know, there are 45,000 customers, members who want their voting envelopes uh, in the post. And you have to honor that. And it's, but it's recognizing that at the heart of it is you're trying to be authentic and communicate to each of your members and each of your customers. And, and that's part of that whole being versatile and nimble. Mm. Yes, it means that you, the type of people you bring in the organization needs to have that empathy, but also not, not only have empathy, but being able to adjust to different needs of different customers given that we've got, you know, effectively three generations that we serve. Yeah, and doing that in a way that you can afford to do, you know, within the constraints that exist within the business, obviously. So, yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Just changing tack. I mean, thank you, first of all, for, for sharing those insights into the organization. One of the questions I ask all of our guests is, you know, what do you think it means to be truly customer-centric? So you've given some great examples of kind of how you walk the talk as an organization, how, you know, if you like, the, 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 almost the reawakening that's taken place of the purpose has kind of strengthened, if you like, the resolve to, to act in that way. Just thinking outside of, of that, I mean, give, give me an example. It can be a amusing one or, or whatever. I mean, have you, give me an example of a really fantastic customer experience that you've experienced and felt. I think the, the thing I always say to people is, you know, you, you, you kind of, you might think it, but if you feel it, you, you, you kind of, it stays with you. That's the memory, if you like. Can you give me an example of that? I suppose I was, I was actually going to go left field to, to it's, it's probably leisure and hotel. And, and it goes back to when my wife and I decided to get married. And, and we went on holiday to uh, Zimbabwe. 
and and the the time we got married was when um, anybody who doesn't know the history of Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe went to a really bad patch where you know it was just went into a complete economic meltdown, and we went to this hotel in a part of the country that we really loved, and as with the rest of the country, things were pretty run down. There weren't too many guests. We were probably ourselves and a few guests, but it's the way the waiters and the staff treated us in a way you really felt i matter i'm 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 passing i'm passing through and you know the chances are i might never come back to this hotel but you just felt we we just felt so welcomed so you know you felt as an individual so it was no brainer for us when we then we decided okay if we're going to get married where are we going to do it and for us and it was one particular waiter who was serving us, who who just you know you just felt like you you found an uncle, a long lost uncle who you didn't know, and we made it known to the management that we were going to book ourselves for the wedding venue and you know the various number you know, effectively fit up the hotel. It was a small hotel, but the credit was because we were treated with so much care and mm. and passion by that, that one particular individual. You just felt like, you know, this is home. And and this is where we almost ignored everything else that was happening, you know, whether, you know, it's it's the dilapidated furniture that they had. It, it just made up for just everything else they were lacking because of just the warmth and, and kind of just the, the feeling that you you mattered and you're important. And that's something that's kind of stuck with me, that, you know, that there, there's, there's a great example that... It's not all all about needing to have the shiniest toy, the newest equipment. It's treating people with decency, with you know the the, the respect and care they need, and that for me has stayed with me because you know mm. not only did we then have a fantastic wedding at, at the same venue several months later, actually more than a month, probably a few a year and a bit later. But it's something that it's a place we we continue to go to um, whenever we we're in that part of the world, and that's just because from that one experience where we felt really loved and welcomed. Yeah, is is that waiter still there? He or she? Really, <laughs> no, the last time we went, he had retired. He was actually an elderly gentleman, and and which which actually put more resonance to it that you know he this is a guy who who had been working at the same hotel for for tens of years. And yet he still brought that same passion mm. and still brought that same level of attention to every customer that he came up with. And he didn't, it didn't tire. And, and, you know, he, he did, you know, we ended up finding a lot of learning a lot about his family. You know, he almost, like I said, he almost became so personalized to that level and that he, he did, he did retire afterwards, but, you know, he's, he's kind of stuck with me as mm. somebody who really took his, his profession. And his customers, in in terms of with with a, with compassion and a strong passion to serve, which which resonates very much with a lot of the stuff you talked about earlier about the asset that you have within your customer service staff, the way in which you reacted to customers just wanting to speak to somebody during COVID nineteen and and you know that sort of thing. It's, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's it, the human voice at the end of the day. You can have all the channels you might want in the world, but when it comes down to it, that's what matters. Yeah. 
and, and dare I ask a, a terrible experience, and, and please don't name the company or the individual because uh, I don't want to be stuck with a libel case. But um, uh, yeah, I just the only reason why I, I love asking this question is because it does sometimes generate some some horror stories, which um, just illustrate the the points even better in some ways in terms of how not to do it. So. Yeah, I, I could point to quite a few, but but I suppose the one that I'll I'll probably point at is within, within the banking sector. And it was, so this is going back to when I first came to the UK and, uh, and you know, started up. I didn't really have any credit rating or anything. So you, you're trying to set off in life. And I did go to one of the larger banks and really felt I was treated as almost, um, to some extent, a leper, <laughs> if, if I could use the uh, kind of biblical reference. And that was not because people were trying to be just nasty or anything, but it just didn't feel like anybody was listening to my particular situation. It, it felt like I was dealing with people who had very rigid, blinkered ways of communicating and, and, and a scripted communication with a customer and therefore didn't really leave room for to even listen to what the customer was saying. And therefore, either you tick the box or if you didn't tick the box, you're, you're kind of you moved on, hurried across. And where it left me with is then the next organization that then almost welcomed me and opened up my accounts and everything. I mean, this is me trying to get a bank account open so that I get my pay in. I've then felt almost a sense of loyalty, even though they've kind of offered me, what I'll say, a very, it was a relatively basic account. It, it was at the time... Um, our, I mean, this is a good story, so uh, I'll probably mention it. It was then at the time a building society. And I felt, you know, over the years, as you go through, I still have that account. And the reason why I have a, that account is because I've had the almost the extreme end of the treatment I had from kind of the, the bigger organization. And then this organization was that much more welcoming. So so I, I think it's, if, if I was to put it a word, it's, it's just the dehumanizing element of I am just but a cog in a wheel. You know, recognize me as an individual. My story is relevant even if you might have heard my story a thousand times. That's something that, you know, it it resonates an emotive response rather than a logical response. And if, if I was looking at logic, I would probably say, well, maybe I should be, you know, the various options that that particular institution gives, you know, and that I can probably get if I was to walk in now and get an account are far better than the other. But is that more emotional? You don't forget where you come from type. So, so, so I think it's just, it's a shame really, because I think it was more of, um, not that I blame the, the individuals that I was dealing with. I think it was more on the, you know, the culture that the, that those people have been driven and the kind of the things that the organization set those people up to do. Mm. And therefore, this is, I don't look at people being bad. I think it's how institutions drive people to a particular behavior. Yeah. And it's interesting you just slip the word culture in there and uh, the shortened version of which is cult again, isn't it? So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's so true. And I, and I very much doubt that the individual involved really understood the purpose of the organization, even if the purpose was good. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly it. And, and, I, and I think it's when we do talk culture and cult, 
you know, that whole cult movement, it, it is it is important that you do bring it up, bring it to life through example, good and bad, yeah. and celebrate it because it's it's something. So one of the things I'm so most awake to in one family, as I said, whilst I do my cold listening to calls on customer service to just see how you know we we're dealing with, it. And, and it's all always very positive and fantastic. It's also not taking it for granted and therefore making sure that we do always celebrate where we are doing great things, where we have great customer experience, mm. because it's through those celebrations that you actually reinforce the culture that you already have because mm. it's, it's, it's so easy to take it for granted. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And the other question I'm, I'm asking all of my guests is, is, could you share something that you've learned in your time as a leader, which you could never have learned at business school, if indeed you went to business school? I don't know if you did or didn't, to be honest, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, I did go to business school. I went to London Business School mm. or for an MBA. I, I think that, to be fair, to a business school, they do tell you, um, I think people t- tend to tell you that it can be, you know, the, the, the good parts and the bad parts. You know, the bad parts tend to be things like, oh, you can be lonely at the top. Actually, I reckon the loneliness is only compounded if you do not empower your people. There is no reason why a leader should feel lonely. And coming into the role, uh, you, you come in, come in and think, okay, these are my challenges. I'm carrying the the weight of the organization on my shoulders, and this is where I want to go in. But I think if you open yourself up a bit more, there's actually you then find that not only do you have a lot of people who are there wanting you to succeed because your success is their success, but you also then realize that you don't have to be isolated and lonely you can be actually more inclusive and empowering and actually that's basically about not only are you having to open up a bit more but then you're also having to communicate a lot more and i think one of one of the things i've learned is there's nothing like excessive communication when the coronavirus lockdown i decided that i was going to just because you know we had an organization flux, we were basically moved shifting a business that was ninety five percent in the office to then suddenly five percent in the office, and therefore to just create that short term visibility, I decided to send daily emails. And over time, you think, oh, okay, this is enough now. I don't really have much to talk about, and you know, I'm just at times sharing my my thoughts. And what really surprised me was <laughs> when I did try to pull the plug on it. There was a cry for no. We need to continue that. Now I had to then compromise. And say, well, look, I, I can't. I can't really be talking to, you, sending an email to everybody on a daily basis. Trimmed it down to twice a week, beginning of the week and end of the week. But what he did tell me was, you think as a leader, you should only speak when you've got something grand and big to announce. But actually, what the business needs is almost that continual dialogue. And to keep it. And I think because of that continual dialogue, it almost feels like we've got closer as an organization. And we've since done quite a number of what we call staff surveys in terms of what has worked, what hasn't worked, and kind of have that playback. And if anything, there's probably been more of a call for more communication. And and some of it is as you know as trivial as you know, just talking about how I spent the weekend at home. But, you know, I never, I never knew that was interesting. 
<laughs> I suppose it depends what you're sharing, but um, yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's really, I mean, that's a very interesting insight. So your your point there that I, I really that really resonated with you is you know most leaders you, you you sort of wait till you've got something big to say. Where actually what you're talking about is it's the it's the background hum, it's the dialogue, it's the the humanising of the communication such that you know making you approachable, but also I guess just making perhaps everybody else feel that they can perhaps share what they've been up to and, and you know, talk a bit more freely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And, and I guess at that point, I mean, just to sort of pivot towards the end of our conversation, two questions which are kind of related. So first of all, from a, a one family perspective, you know, what do you think is going to stick in terms of the ways of working that have been, I mean, you, you cited one there. It sounds like, you know, you, you've got a sort of determination or a plan to to keep communicating the small stuff as well as the big stuff. But what what about that from a one family perspective? What do you think is going to stay? And then perhaps elevating that to the, the whole relevance of mutuality and a, and a mutual in the 21st century, which is a debate that rages and has raged since I've been in this industry, sort of 25, 30 years as, as people went through demutualizations in the 80s and all the good financial reasons for doing that. So so what about one family? But also, how do you see the sector evolving? And not just in the light of COVID, but perhaps some of the, the, the shunts that that's given the sector? Yeah. So, so I think on the first piece, in terms of what's going to stick, I would like to believe that inclusivity point is one of the things that's going to stick the most and and in, in terms of and it starts with us as the organization that there has been a lot of look in the mirror uh, and 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 I think to a large extent just that pause and the lack of the physical activity so one of the big events that we've always sponsored year in year out is pride but what, the way it's kind of manifested itself historically is almost the Brighton Pride March becomes the the event, and therefore we you know we, we almost spend an inordinate amount of time preparing for it and kind of the float, and that almost becomes a distraction. What this year has basically allowed us to do is because we couldn't do that because of social distance and everything, it actually meant that there was more learning, and there was almost a pause to actually the self-reflection of do we really understand what pride is all about and and actually became quite clear that actually we don't you know we've we've associated with an event but actually never really got to try to understand it so i think the thing that i hope will stick is is more that empathy self-reflection openness to have a conversation another event that the team found i mean all collective found quite Court was when we had the George Floyd event. Um, I got invited by a member of staff on their team talk to just have an interview like what we have in here. And, you know, he was extremely nervous, you know, I suppose, you know, being I'm just in a black CEO in a very emotive subject and him mm. being a white male. And and the thing that we basically discussed where you was basically shall I prep any questions? And I said, no, actually. The thing we need to learn to do is to have, and it might mean that those conversations might represent wobbly steps, but actually the real win is actually being able to open up. And if you've got things in your mind that you are wanting to ask, at times we need to create that enabling safe environment where you can safely ask a question without fearing that you might ask it wrong or might offend 
because by you not asking, you're not learning and we're not moving forward. So, so I think it's that license that, you know, there isn't a, this is not for me to get into. This is, I need a permission to get into. It's almost that open license of if we really embrace an inclusive diversity and inclusion is that it also is a license to ask questions where we don't know and to learn. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's something that I, I'm really keen that we, we hold on to. Now, on the mutual sector, I, I think the UK has, you know, as you, as you highlight, you know, we, we've gone through the throes of the, the carpet bagging that happened in the 80s where, you know, I forgot about that term, actually. <laughs> it was, you know, there the, some smart people who realized that they could basically cash in on the <laughs> yeah. estate by suddenly yeah. becoming members and, and therefore demutualize and then people get paid. And then we then had the stream of demutualizations that then followed all leading to the turn of the century. And, and indeed, we've had more recent ones. And the thing I'll say is, you know, mutuality as a business model does not in its own right define business success so like any other sector we will have companies that will do well and then companies that their models uh, will struggle and fail but as a concept so so you know we 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 can see both mutuals there have been a reduction of mutuals but indeed if i was being fair i'll look at plcs in the life insurance sectors the number of mergers that we've had in in that sector so Weaker businesses will always fold and there'll always be an element of consolidation. But as a model, I think mutuality for me is actually as a concept, is actually a unique offering that in this present day is probably more relevant than ever. And I actually genuinely believe that particularly with you know, whether it's the David Attenborough impact and, you know, I, I see a lot of signs where this whole society coming back to its collective responsibility and wanting to be in greater control of where they direct in the future, which is effectively the roots of mutuality. I see that as, as something that is just going to reinforce the concept of mutuality and opportunity. And whilst we we probably have taken a bit of a backseat in the UK in terms of, you know, pushing that agenda forward, and I think that we had a lot of opportunities to do so, I look at other countries that probably were would have seen as copying us, where you actually have some really strong mutual movements, places like Canada, the Scandinavian countries, where actually they've demonstrated that you can take the concept of mutual mutuality and as long as you are engaging your customer base, you can actually create an affinity and a sustainable business model, which is very different to kind of a PLC. So, so everything for me points to that as a concept, there is, this is probably the right time. As a concept, um, you know, being in an organization where it doesn't pit the, the people that are being sold products to and those who own the business you know, that, that is just a unique offering that, mm. you know, is it, just a, a latent asset. And I, I genuinely do believe whether it's building societies or friendly societies, they, there's a lot of room for uh, the businesses to differentiate themselves from uh, other models. No, I, I mean, that, that's fascinating. And, um, you know, if I think about the 
the title of this series around the rise of the customer, which kind of implies a bit of an imbalance, if you like, you know, the consumer power, the fear of how you've got these ever powerful customers. Actually, what you're talking about there is is more than just a leveling off. It's a complete integration between the aims of the customer because they own the organization. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of, it's a check and balancing system that, that should work. And if, if, I guess it comes back to purpose again. So if, you've got, if you've got a purpose and a reason and clarity around that and you can serve customers to that purpose, then hopefully there's a bright future. I, I certainly hope so. And whilst you know, I speak for one family, I, I do also, for, for the sector to be vibrant, I would like to see new entrants as well. You know, I mean, maybe this is my regulatory tag on, but I do firmly believe that uh, one of the disciplines that, you know, gives more power to the customer is by having competition with different offerings. And I think for, for me, it is, is about keeping ourselves to what we are trying to serve and the mere fact that we are in competition with different models and different businesses. I think the, the winner in that, if done appropriately, is the customer. Brilliant. Teddy, we're out of time and I just want to say thank you. What a, what a great conversation we've had. Thank you for being so, so candid and open with your feelings as well as your thoughts on things. And um, I hope that our listeners have, have got a, a great deal out of that in terms of looking at this through a, a mutual lens, but particularly through a lens of someone like yourself who you know, has, has come at this you know, from a, quite a different angle in, in terms of how you think about things. So, so thank you for that. And um, yeah, well, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. No, thank you very much. Uh, really enjoyed the chat. And um, no, certainly look forward to further conversations. And um, I hope your listeners would have learned something from this or picked something up. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Cheers, Teddy. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.